When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, ever since I was a kid with the, my first aquarium in my bedroom, I had this sort of vision of the underwater environment as this like, complex tangle of aquatic you know, plants, branches, twigs, etc. Now, the idea was probably put in my head from something I did or, or read on jungle streams, and the vision never really left me. And curiously, as I look back on some of the memorable tanks and experiences that I've had in aquariums over the years, I couldn't help but think back to all the ones that held a special fascination for me. There was a sort of commonality to them all, and I think it was the complexity of the aquarium's structure. Uh, it's something that I continue to play with to this day in some of my most successful aquariums. Factors other than planning, however, were often the catalysts of my earliest learning experiences with this concept. Now. We all have a life outside of the aquarium-keeping world. Well, we all should, and sometimes it impacts our aquariums. And I know that growing up, there were a number of times over the decades that, for one reason or another, I simply let the tanks run themselves, save the occasional water change or filter media cleaning, and of course, you know, regular feeding, which consists of tossing in some frozen food or whatever. And a particularly fond memory of this type of practice comes from my senior year in high school, when I was a seriously into breeding killies in addition to keeping saltwater cichlids, tetras, and of course the usual high school dude pursuits of, you know, girls, surfing, socializing, all that kind of stuff. I was a junior member of the American Killifest Association and I obtained a, a group of killies, in this case, uh, Epiplates degedi monrovie, one of my favorites of all time, and I was determined to breed them. And of course they were pretty easy by killie standards. They had a reputation for being sort of a beginner's fish. I hate that word, but that's what they said. Uh, you know, requiring just basic care, feeding, and the usual measure of patience. And as a busy kid, I had little patience, although more than the average high school guy. After all, I was a fish geek, right? And less time. So I was delighted to learn that some hobbyists found these fishes were able to do okay in permanent and what they called natural setups, which is, of course, fish geek code for set and forget, right? Um, granted, with the smaller but regular you know, production of fries. So, of course, this was the perfect fish for my busy lifestyle at the time. I set up a pair and a few extra females in a five-gallon aquarium, you know, planted with water sprite, water sprite, hygrophila, and I think rotala. And I gave it a little moderate light from a, an incandescent fixture, I think it was, in, the, in that tank. Uh, you know, had a sponge filter for filtration, and it ran just fine with little intervention on my part. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit that I would sometimes go a week or more without so much as looking at the tank long enough to just toss food in there. And one day, I think it was during spring break, I took the time to really stare into this tank to see what was going on. And sure enough, upon close examination, I saw several little fry and some juveniles, you know, flitting in and among the rotala. I was stoked. I mean, it was cool. Rather than panic and start hatching brine shrimp, I made the very mature and level-headed decision, at least at the time, to just sort of leave them alone, as I'd been doing for months. I resisted that temptation to net them out and, you know, power feed them and otherwise intervene. I reasoned that I could hardly do better than what they were apparently being provided by nature, as they had done successfully for, well, eons. 
And I ultimately ended up with a pretty stable population of around 12 to 15 individuals as a, uh, you know, in a tank that I just sort of maintained, and I use that term in quotes, for around three or four years. And ironically, the difficulties only started when I had the time to really get into taking care of the fishes. And I took a more, you know, more initiative and more control of the breeding. And I ultimately slowly lost the entire colony, which is kind of sad, but that's what happens when you start messing with stuff that's doing well. It's a valuable lesson. Sometimes what we'd classify as benign neglect is actually the best thing we could do. The closest imitation to nature that we could offer fish is in captive environments. I experimented this, uh, with this idea recently in my little no-scape leaf litter tank for uh, Paracaridon simulans, the green neon tetra, which was set up in the hopes of passively feeding the fish via organisms living in and produced via the layer of decomposing leaf litter, which provided the entire hardscape, if you will, of the aquarium. It worked, and it worked well. And as part of the experiment, I did not feed these fishes during the entire seven-month duration of the experiment, and they were not only as fat and happy as any green neon tetras I'd ever seen, but they spawned repeatedly in the tank. They subsisted entirely on food sources produced by the aquarium. And I've re- as I've reiterated before, the tank was pre-stocked with some small crustaceans, paramecium cultures, and some worms and such, and allowed to break in for a month or so before fishes were even added. It was set up to succeed in this fashion, and succeed it did. I'm currently repeating a variation of this with my prize Tucanichthys Tucano. Uh, some of you have seen it on our, you know, Instagram live uh, little broadcast. And I'm having similar good results. I haven't had the breeding yet, or at least that I can tell, but I seem to have sometimes seen what appears to be like breeding type behavior, uh, kerosene type breeding behavior, but I've got to look at it a little more closely. Now, I'm not suggesting that you abandon all care of your fishes, but I am suggesting that you reconsider the way you might care for some of the more demanding varieties from a breeding aspect anyways. Sometimes it is best to simply monitor and not intervene so much. Most breeders know this, I'm sure. This is not some new rocket science thing, but it's hard to do for us hands-on fish geeks, particularly for a hardcore reefer like myself, who is very much a hands-on person for many years. But it often works far better than our efforts to take control of the situation, in my opinion. In a well-established, properly cared-for aquarium, fishes will find sustenance among the resources already present in their environment. In many cases, the tank itself may not produce enough food to sustain an entire population of, you know, mid-sized adult fishes. However, it might be able to supplement whatever feeding you're actively doing as an aquarist and very likely could do the same for fry until they're at least caught and moved to a proper nursery tank. I was reminded this years later when I checked out the office aquarium of a friend who had a pretty busy travel schedule and he called me up two weeks into his month-long trip and said, hey, dude, can you go... Uh, drop some food into my tank just make sure the tank's still functioning I said sure and his tank was a typical planted tank with CO2 and all that stuff and of course you know much like with our youth when you know we have crazy schedules and like you know like running businesses and stuff we can't always maintain these tanks as steadfastly as we liked and it was certainly the case with his tank when I arrived uh, the tank was just packed with plants I mean it was like a 40 gallon cube aquarium just packed but the fishes were healthy active and just solid in fact he had some marble angelfish, and they had, at least one pair had a small clutch of eggs, and the other pair, I think, paired off as well. It was just another reminder to me that there is more than one way to keep an aquarium and have fishes reproduce. I saw this again more recently in my friend Dave's, what I call jungle tank, in his home. Now, he's a rock-solid, ultra-DIY, high-tech-loving, super-talented reefer. I mean, the guy has a coral propagation facility in his backyard and an actual... Uh, surge device over his 400 gallon reef tank where it makes a wave every few seconds creative genius but he keeps his freshwater tank packed with full of plants and assorted libraries i mean there's like hundreds of them just does water changes and the occasional and i mean occasional thinning of plants and a little bit of feeding which just consists of throwing in pellets and that's it 
And it's an amazing tank. I could stare at this thing for hours. It's one of the coolest tanks I've ever seen in my life. Elegant, simple by design, yet utterly complex in its functions. It's a case study for seeding control to nature. In his case, it was probably a case for benign laziness or whatever, but the point is, it conceptually it works. A case study for seeding control to nature. Welcome back to the jungle. There's something to be said for this sort of style of tank. It's a more modern, better equipped, slightly differently executed homage to the Leiden style planted tanks of the early 20th century. A sort of way to create a densely planted, intricate underwater world, which leaves the system largely to its own devices with minimal human intervention. Although the true earliest Leiden style tanks didn't have pumps and filters and such, so we're a little bit ahead of the curve, the common element in all the tanks I've referred to in this piece thus far are that they have all had reasonably manageable fish populations, fertile substrates, adequate lighting, and an outrageous amount and variety of plants, or in the case of my more recent experiments, significant, what I call biodegradable hardscape in the form of twigs, leaves, or botanicals. They're set up for success. A significant quantity of food producing or supporting materials is the common denominator among these tanks. And in these days of intricately planted, tightly executed, high-concept planted aquariums, it's fun to see what happens when they're left largely to their own devices. Yes, the m most serious competitive aquascapers would simply lose their shit at the mere thought of this kind of thing. Yet, there's something oddly refreshing about this idea. Plants not in perfectly manicured form, with occasional bits of algae and awkward, untended growth. Kind of like what happens in nature, actually. And I refer you to the much-discussed urban agapo tanks that I've been playing with and talking about incessantly lately. The idea of a cyclically flooded terrestrial display with rich soils, submersion-tolerant grasses, and some terrestrial plants and botanicals becoming home for annual killifishes whose eggs incubated in situ. This is a really compelling concept. The potential for them to serve as a sort of nursery for many types of fishes with this type of tank is there. We're still in the early you know, experimental phases of this concept, and we'll see how it goes, but I think it's pretty encouraging. There's numerous examples of this sort of habitat in nature that we draw upon for inspiration. And each hosts a large population of fishes, insects, and other aquatic organisms existing in a uniquely seasonally controlled habitat. Like so many things in the natural world, there's often more to it than meets the eye upon first glance. Like, much more. I think you could perhaps even envision viewing, you know, jungle style or urban agapo style aquariums much like the abandoned lot down the street. You know, the one where they, they haven't built a house yet and it's filled with patches of leaves and a few weeds, uh, a few hardy shrubs, and soil. Perhaps unattractive and disorderly upon first glance, at least to the uninitiated, yet it's oddly compelling and even beautiful in its own way upon closer examination. A really unique little microcosm of life. Now, I'm not suggesting that you abandon husbandry and care protocols in favor of neglect for some grand experiment. I'm not suggesting that we look at our aquariums as patches of weeds and accept the aesthetics as high concept or anything. However, the term natural does sound more applicable in this case, right? What I am suggesting is that sometimes well-thought-out, decently-maintained closed systems can regulate themselves with a bit of minimal in intervention on our part. And this is not some recent discovery. Rather, it harkens back to the literal dawn of you know, fish-keeping. And of course, the science behind it is as old as nature itself. Plants and animals whose needs are you know, being met will thrive and come to dominate the closed ecosystems for better or for worse, just like in nature. We could allow the plants to grow in a manner that they want to. We could allow some algae, some biofilm, some decomposition, some more accurate representation of what happens in nature. In fact, one could probably make the argument, at least on a superficial level, that the benignly neglected aquarium, or more precisely, the minimal intervention aquarium, may be the closest imitation of nature that we can present. 
With botanical-style blackwater aquariums, the emphasis has been much more on the overall scene than on a specific component. And long-term functionality in terms of creating a stable, biologically active, and diverse system has been the next big step we've taken after merely creating workable blackwater botanical-style aquariums, hasn't it? Plants, active substrates, cryptic zones, refugia, deep leaf litter beds are becoming and will continue to become more and more a part of our scene and would be an interesting to see how a benignly you know, neglected botanical-style aquarium fares over time, right? Something akin to what we see in nature, I suspect. Although I certainly wouldn't advocate running every single botanical-style blackwater aquarium, especially one devoid of plants in this fashion, there are aspects of the idea that I do find intriguing. And there's much to learn from the idea. One, to me, that seems a bit orth, you know, unorthodox, even radical, yet it's something that reaches back to the earliest days of aquarium keeping. Truly working with nature, not in the cliche-ridden, you know, aquascaping contest fanboy bullshit sense, mind you. Rather, embracing the mindset that if we help create conditions for life to exist, nature can work with what we offer to create conditions for life to thrive. There are many ways to practice this craft of devotion to nature, of course. The concept of creating our own flooded forest, including that rich substrate and mix of leaves and botanicals and terrestrial and marginal aquatic plants, is another logical step to embrace as we continue to push the boundaries to create truly natural style aquariums. I think that this idea will provide a lot of unlocks in multiple facets of the aquarium hobby as more and more aquarists start playing with it. So the idea of ceding some control of our aquariums to nature again in order for them to provide for our fishes rears its head. And it's simply not a crazy idea, is it? Nope. It makes a ton of sense given nature's ability to find a way to support almost life almost wherever possible. Yeah, nature's got this thing down. The question is, are you down with nature? We've done it before in the hobby. We can do it again. Welcome back to the jungle. Stay open-minded. Stay focused. Stay determined. Stay on top of things. Or not. And stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Melman. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.